Welcome to episode 19 of the Chalk Dinosaur Podcast. Uh, on this episode, I want to talk about Spectrum. And I wanted to do a series of episodes that highlight each album. And I kind of go through how they were made and the backstories and that kind of information. Um, so there's going to be a little overlap with the last episode because I, I talked a good bit about Spectrum. But, um, you know, for searchability and if somebody just wanted to hear about Spectrum, then this is it. And uh, I'm going to do this for all the albums, you know, unless I lose interest or something, <laughs> which kind of happened for about a year um, when I didn't make a podcast for, for like a year. But anyway, let's talk about Spectrum. So this is the second full-length, full-band album. So, full-band album meaning the live band that, you know, uh, I've been playing with um, for the last, you know, since 2018, which is me, John Henderson, formerly of the Buckle Downs. He's the guitar player. Um, Andrew Belcastro, bass player, former neighbor, housemate uh, and Nick O'Halloran who's my brother he plays the drums and this has been um, the lineup for you know a couple years and when we get together to practice there's always a lot of jamming that we do you know where we're not playing a song or just playing and a lot of times we come up with ideas during those times and, you know, grooves and or little like motifs or melodies that we like. And uh, once we've accumulated enough of these jams that we like, um, we put them into an album. So that's, that's kind of what happened with this. Um, most of the ideas are things that we uh, developed in our practice space jamming and or you know developed like specifically for a show like we wanted to have something new to play at a show so we we made something um, it's kind of a mix of things that I brought to the table things that John brought to the table and things that we just created as a you know collaborative unit uh, in the in the practice space that we were renting so Given that these were songs that we had played live and kind of, they were, most of them were mostly composed at the time. Like we had them pretty figured out. Um, and we we're getting them, you know, dialed in. And for this album, uh, I wanted to capture that live sound. You know, I still wanted to have it clean and and you know well mixed and everything but like the live energy that we get from playing it together um in the past i've found it's just really frustrating and difficult to capture that sound if you do it layer by layer it, it doesn't necessarily sound better or worse it just sounds different and uh, i thought it was important that we capture our sound as a band um so in order to do that we or I, I thought it would be the best that, to record it live. And recording 
the full band live requires a bit more technical stuff than I had available. I mean, I could have done it. I did it for Home Fest, but like, it's not ideal because, um, you know, we don't have a great room, tracking room. Um, I don't have, you know, I have a limited number of microphones and inputs. So I contacted Sean at Plus Minus Studios in Southside, which is very convenient because we lived there. And his rate was very affordable. And me and the band uh, split the cost of that. And we went in for a day and recorded, let's see, one, two, five songs. The album ended up being seven songs, but we recorded five of them at the studio live. Um, and the intent was to capture the energy of our performance, not necessarily to capture the solos that would be become the album versions. Like we were planning on, you know, overdubbing some stuff and also adding some layers uh, after we recorded at the studio. We just wanted to get the main bulk of the sound live in the studio. So that's the first album, first Chalk Dinosaur album that was recorded in a studio that wasn't, you know, in my residence. And it was really great having someone else do the engineering, like setting up all the microphones, getting all the sounds, just making, pushing all the buttons, just making sure everything was working. So all we had to do was just play the song when he said, go. So we recorded... Spectrum at plus minus on August 22nd and it only took a day to record the songs but we put a lot of time in before that with quote pre-production so we were basically practicing as if we were going to play a show um, we just tried to get the songs down you know just get to know them really well and do our best to make sure that we could, you know, nail a take or, or just get everything we needed in, you know, a couple takes. So a lot more time went in to the album before we recorded it. Some of these songs were, you know, a year old at this time. Like we had been kind of tuning them through shows and at our jam space. And, um, and the, but the actual recording only took a day. And then the editing, mixing, and like finalization of the album took another, let's see, four months. So it's pretty crazy. The actual recording only took a day. But we didn't go in there with the intention of coming out with a finished product. Um, we just uh, went in with the intention of getting the rhythm section, if nothing else, just getting the rhythm section for all the songs. Rhythm section meaning drums, bass, rhythm guitar parts. And then I would, you know, do the decorating of the tracks at home. Decorating, meaning, you know, adding extra layers like uh, synthesizers and doubling guitar melodies and redoing solos that um, I thought I could do better. Um, so... That was a that was a fun experience, and I'm really glad we did that. Uh, I was about to leave for a few months, so I knew we had to get it done before I left. At least the recording, and then I would, 
um, do the mixing and, and finish the album from wherever I was at. And the album art was a picture drawn by my brother Nick, who's the drummer. We had it framed above our couch. Um, it was next to some other album art that my other brother Mike had made. And um, we always thought it would make a good album cover. Um, and we were having trouble figuring out our album cover situation. Um, I was working on some minimal text-based designs, but we couldn't agree on like the typography, like how the text should look, what font it was. Uh, we just couldn't like come to a consensus on, on that. So in the middle of that, while we were trying to figure that out, Nick suggested uh, the picture he drew because we had thought about that and like how it would make a, a good album cover someday. And um, I had forgotten about it and just had, hadn't considered it. But once he brought it up, it, it was... Uh, it felt good because I was, I just felt like that was an easy choice. Like, we'll just do that. Um, and yeah, then it's a, it's a little more personal, you know, it's even, you know, uh, it's an internal job, artwork from uh, the drummer. And, um, but yeah. So I think I'll, uh, I'm going to go through the tracks and, and talk a little bit about them each. So the first song on the album is called Fire Alarm. And this was an idea that I... It was like an idea that I worked out on my own to some degree, and then I brought it to the band for a show. And they learned it. And we, we played through it, and then we, we tweaked it a little bit. Like, um, I think we might have added some sections or something, and I definitely added on to the, like, the backing track, um, you know, as time went on. It kind of added more, like, sound effects and, like, synthesizers and just stuff like that. But, uh... The reason, or I think the first time we ever played it, and I can't really say at a show because it wasn't at a show, but uh, for Home Fest, for our video performance, that was the first time we played Fire Alarm. And um, yeah, we ended up liking that one a lot. And we called it Fire Alarm because one day... Uh, we practiced in a, a storage building called Store Express in Southside. The seventh floor is all uh, band rehearsal rooms, which is really great. It's like a place to go be loud any time of the day or night and not, not piss anybody off. But um, we were practicing one day, and the fire alarm went off, and everybody had to evacuate the building. And I'm not sure... I think it was just an electrical malfunction. Like there, there was no fire, but everybody had to leave and we had to wait for them to clear the building to go back in. So we went to, I think we went to the library or Kupka's. Kupka's, Kupka's. We went to some bar like on East Carson, like a block away. They had some tables outside and we just sat outside. It was a really nice day. We drank some beer and just waited for 
them to say we could go back in the building. And yeah, that was, that turned out to be a really nice uh, experience. Um, and yeah, it made me think, it made all of us think about like, oh boy, what if you had to, you know, what if there was a fire? What, what are you going to grab? And like, what if you, what if the elevator didn't work and you had to take all your shit down the stairs? That, that would suck. But anyway, there was no fire, but we ended up calling the song fire alarm because of that specific memory. I'm not sure if we were working on fire alarm when we did that, but that's what it's called. And, um, yeah, I feel like the first part reminds me of Ace Ventura when he's riding in that SUV with the, the other guy. This is from Ace Ventura when nature calls and he's like bouncing around acting like he is driving on like a really rough, you know, off-road trail, but then the camera zooms out and they're just like on the highway and, and he's just, uh, he's just, uh, goofing off. And that, that reminds me of that. It also kind of reminds me of the first Ace Ventura when he's driving the car and he's like rolls the car into the parking spot and you know like a glove that thing yeah. reminds me of Jim Carrey driving a vehicle um, that for some reason kind of got like a spy detective feel in the beginning um, James Bond or something and so and then I guess like, so for that song, when I was like putting that together, I had, I wanted there to be some like hooks, I guess, like melodies that, that came back, like uh, just distinct melodies. And then I also wanted to create some space in there for improv, you know, for just lead solo stuff. So the way I did that was in the first half of the song, there's a section where I do a solo and that section is in a minor key, like a, or a Dorian key. Like, um, it, it's just like my favorite sound to solo in. And then in the second half of the song, I made that second half of the song in a uh, mixolydian mode, which is like a major key and I did that because John Henderson, I love hearing him play in that key, uh, in that mode. And um, so I definitely wanted to put something in there that that played to his strengths. I mean, in my opinion, his strengths, which is Mixolydian. Um, so then that it kind of worked out because then, you know, the first half of the song is, you know, minor and the second half is major. And we both get a chance to solo in our you know in modes that we like or uh kind of try to play to our strengths there with that and um that was one that just it came together really quickly and um pretty quickly became like a song that we were very comfortable playing live and uh it's just easy to just easy to integrate into our set So the second song, Winds of Change, um, this was created after the recording session. This We didn't record this in the studio. It's more of an interlude. Um, 
it's meant to connect fire alarm to the song that comes after it. So it's kind of just the connective tissue because we decided we wanted to make this album gapless, you know, a continuous play uh, album where everything kind of led into each other. Got to adjust this mic here. Yeah. So winds of change. I I was, uh, I made this when I was living in Long Beach in California and I was watching a lot of Stranger Things with uh, my girlfriend and uh, I'm kind of late to the party on that show, but I loved the soundtrack um, and the, the tones in the soundtrack, all the just kind of retro synth tones, a lot of the ambient kind of pulsing synth stuff. And I, I really liked that. And that definitely, that definitely like comes out in Winds of Change. Uh, it's pretty much a direct influence from Stranger Things. But it was fun getting to getting to do something in that style, like so immediately after like being immersed in it from that show. So for that song, it has a lot of like retro analog synth tones, but I didn't have my normal tools with me in California. I didn't have my my analog synthesizers. So I needed to create those sounds with my software synthesizers, which, you know, I wanted to get more handy with anyway. But I found a free one online called Tyrell, and it's it's really great. I love it. And it, it gives me, like, the vintage synth, not only the interface, like how you control it, is, like, very similar to the Juno, which was, like, a synthesizer I used to have that I loved um, so it was, it felt very homey to work on it because it reminded me of the Juno and the sound was, you know, it sounded great. I could get those kind of vintage tones, uh, with that synth. And then I, I, I'm pretty sure I probably used a couple plugins that create a, uh, more lo-fi or vintage sound. Um, there's the one the heck's it called retro color box i think re20 i think it is it's a plug-in where like there's a couple features on it where like one of them's like you know vinyl crackle or tape hiss one of the features is like pitch modulation so it gives it like a warbly like the pitch drift sound of like a warped vinyl or um like a cassette tape that's not you know, playing at a consistent speed. It had like a, a little bit of saturation and it had reverb and um, it had like a tape flutter feature or flux, tape flux. I'm not, yeah, but that, that plugin's great for making stuff sound kind of old and vibey. So I probably used that. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. It just just a little short piece to connect two other pieces of music. And I'm, it was specifically to lead into track number three, which is called Agua de Vida. Agua de Vida is another kind of interlude, connective tissue piece of music. Um, 
that was created as an introduction for the song after it, which is Agua de Papa. But let's let's stay with the track number three here for now, Agua de Vida. Um, so this song started because John Henderson, the guitar player, um, made the suggestion that we should create an intro for Agua de Papa, which is track number four. So, and he had an idea for it and he recorded it. Um, it was just like a repeating acoustic guitar loop. Um, it was just a, he, he just played this, you know, four bar, eight bar, whatever loop on his acoustic guitar and then sent that to me. Sounded really nice. And then I started adding to it and um, it just snowballed into Agua de Vida, which is, it turned into a very like epic, um, hopeful and kind of just powerful piece. But it started out just as a bare acoustic guitar loop. And that's what, that's how the song starts too. That, that loop that he sent me is how the song starts. And then it just builds from there. And, um, so for that, I, there's a, an orchestral element in it. Um, some orchestral sounds. And I think that was a result of, that was a result of um, the work I was doing at the time, like my my um, commercial TV composing work, like the, the stuff I do to kind of make a living. So I had purchased some new orchestral tools, like a, samples like sample libraries um i think it was eight eight do like the number eight then dio eight do i think it was that company i got their ostinato strings and brass pack and then i also got a free sample pack from them i forget what the it was like legato strings or something. I don't know. It was just like much better string sounds than what I had available. So it was exciting to work with. Something sounded a little better than what I had. And so I ended up using those. And um, for the synthesizer sounds, I used the Tyrell again. Lots of that. And that synthesizer, software synthesizer, is free. And... Um, did a great job on that song. So, oh, and then the drums. The drums are actually taken, like there's, I, 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 I cut out a loop, like an eight bar section from Agua de Papa, which is the, the song after this song. I took those drums and I used those. I like chopped up the beat and rearranged it and made a new beat out of it and kind of processed it differently. And so recycled drums from another song into this song. And um, yeah, oh yeah. And, and so the track number two, Winds of Change, um, I, I didn't say why it's named that. And I, I just named it that because of just the massive amount of change that has happened over the last year in terms of COVID, um, our, 
our bass player moved to Utah, although this was after, um, you know, I moved to California and then I moved back and then I moved out of Southside and there was just so much change on the horizon in terms of like our living situations. I, I, I knew we weren't going to renew our lease in Southside and that we would all be moving. Um, you know, after the album was released, you know, John had a son. Um, I moved in with a new girlfriend. Like, there's just, like, so much change. And I could feel the winds a-blowing. So that's why I named it that. Uh, Agua de Vida. That one is named Agua de Vida simply because the track after it is named Agua de Papa. So Agua de Vida, uh, Water of Life, Agua de Papa, Dad Water. What is Dad Water? Uh, that is just a little inside joke because we uh, sometimes go through phases of drinking Michelob Ultra and we call them Dad Waters because they're just so refreshing and light. And uh, so that's what we call those. And that's why that song's named that. Maybe because it just reminds us of dad's drinking beers. I'm not sure. Track number four. Yes, Agua de Papa. So this, this is an old song. We'd been playing it live, I don't know, maybe a year. We, we wrote this song in... I mean, it, it came together over, you know probably a few months of kind of just tinkering with it. But the initial ideas for it were developed in Southside in our house, in my studio upstairs where I, you could see that on the old podcast videos, but we would sometimes have writing sessions up there. So it would be, you know, low volume. We had that little drum set with like mesh heads on it. So like we could still kind of get a the same feeling as like playing, um, but it was just more easy to work at like a conversational volume and, and kind of just, we would workshop ideas up there sometimes. That's how we, that's how we wrote uh, Voyage to the Yogurt Planet and probably a bunch of other ones too. Whenever we would, yeah, we, we would sometimes have like workshop sessions up there and then whenever the ideas were ready, we would go to the practice space and try them out, you know, full blast at, you know, our full volume when like as if we were, you know, at a show or something. So yeah, and it actually started out a little different. Like the very first idea that we had that turned into that song um isn't even in the it, it ended up not even being in the song. Like um uh, because we were just jamming over an E chord, but playing in, oh, I forget what, like Lydian, we, we were playing in some mode like F sharp, Lydian dominant or something, but we were jamming like very ambiently over an E chord, I think. Honestly, I'm not exactly sure, but I, knew, I do know that, that whatever we started out as that, that led to the song is not in the final song. Um, yeah, and Agu de Papa, this one, this one is like made for John Henderson, I feel like, 
like in terms of his guitar playing he always um really shines in this song uh his like mixolydian shredding um especially like his his solo in this song is just what's uh it's it's really uh really hot stuff and um the second half of the song where all the soloing happens um i have a section john has kind of like a little teaser lead section where he plays a uh, he has like a riff um but it, it kind of it's kind of like a a bit of a teaser um cuz he doesn't really go off yet and then i i have a solo section and have always been kind of never happy with what I was doing with that section, live at least, because Mixolydian is just not, I'm not that good or like familiar with it enough to like fully do what I want to do with that section. So the solo that I did at the studio when we recorded it, I ended up not using that. I kind of figured I wouldn't because I just, I just never felt like I really nailed that section. So I spent a lot of time re redoing my solo in that song. Um, when does that happen? It's like the twangy, surfy. It's like, I don't know how to describe the sound of it, but uh, I wanted to really nail, nail that section. Okay, yeah. At four minutes... That's when it that's when my solo starts and I just remember spending a lot of time trying to figure out what to play there and I was playing on my normal guitar the Gibson ES335 I was trying to like do like a shredding like ripping saturated overdriven solo similar to like what John was doing and it just wasn't um working that well like I wasn't getting I just like felt like I didn't have the like the skills or the the comfortable the comfortableness with the mixolydian scale to really like shred in that section the way I wanted to um so I wasn't sure what to do because I, I felt like I just wasn't getting the result I wanted. So I, I thought maybe I needed to try something a little more outside of the box, um, and see what, if that, see what I could come up with that. So I tried a cleaner tone and I switched guitars to my brother Nick's guitar, which is a Fender Mustang, which has a much different sound than my guitar. And it also has a whammy bar. Um, so I switched guitars and that just the change in the tone um, sparked a lot of ideas and the solo that I came up with I, I really like and it ended up kind of being more almost like rockabilly surf and a lot of like whammy bar action and yeah I was really happy with that because it was just something way different than it was just one of those times where I decided to try something different and it ended up working out in a way that I really liked. Um, and it provided a little more contrast to John's 
searing solo, which comes after that. Um, so after my kind of like surfy rockabilly solo, John Henderson um, does his solo, which is just like always awesome to hear live um, when he does that. And and that was his take from the recording studio. Like he just nailed it at the studio, and which was awesome because I feel like his best his best um, improvisational lead stuff comes out when we are playing a song, like when we're like performing a song. Whereas I feel like my best lead or solo stuff happens like in the studio when I have, you know, hours and hours to really like get microscopic with, with the composition of the solo. But, um, yeah, I could never really like, nail that one live uh, in the way that I wanted but maybe now it'll be different since I kind of have a, a well I have that solo at least I could do that but then you know I could I could work off of that kind of have more of a more of an idea um, I guess ultimately I just need to play more but I did play quite a bit recording that solo so what else is there to say about this song? Um, yeah, it's just like it rocks the hardest out of out of any of the songs in the album, I think. Um, yeah, and that that kind of led into <laughs> so when we were making that song, like when we when we would play it for until we released the album, that song was just called F sharp because it's it's in F sharp, the key. And the next song on the album, number five, is called Jeff Sharp uh, because we <laughs> that song is also an F sharp. They kind of like went hand in hand. We would play, I don't know, we were kind of on an F sharp kick. So to differentiate between the two F sharp songs, you know, Agua de Papa, the original F sharp song was called F sharp. And then Jeff Sharp, the other F sharp song we called Jeff Sharp. Nick, Nick came up with that idea. And uh, that one's just more like a funky, funky tune, um, which we kind of developed that half in our practice space together, uh, jamming. Like we we had some of the ideas there. Like the I know I know like the melody came up in the jam space, like in our practice space, and then we spent quite a lot of time tinkering with the arrangement, like the, the different sections of the song. And it was a bit of a challenge to wrangle that idea. Cause like we, we weren't sure what to do with it. We, we played it one time. We played it last, no summer of 2019 or maybe it was fall at Garefest. That's the only time we've ever played that song. I think, or no, we played it at farm jam too. Maybe. I'm not exactly sure. I know we played it at least one time. And it was quite a bit different, like the, the second half of the song. But yeah, we it, it just never felt like we really got it. We, we weren't really sure what to do with it, um, the second half of the song, because it just didn't quite feel right. Like we couldn't get it uh, 
quite right. But eventually we did um, and got it into an arrangement that, that we all liked and that flowed naturally. And then so we kind of had to relearn that arrangement before the studio. And then, yeah, just tried to nail the rhythm instruments and I added all the keyboard and the guitar solos after after the recording session. Um, and John also, I, I sent the song to John for, we, we each had solo sections. Uh, that's kind of the way our songs are. Like John will have one and, I'll, and then I'll have one. Or um, So he, he took the track, put his solos on it, and then I put mine on. Um, that was uh, that was that. The voice at the beginning that says introduction. Um, that's just like one of those text to speech websites where you type in a word or sentence and you can pick a voice and it'll say it for you. And that was initially created as a guide track for uh to help us learn the structure of the song because it's a pretty long song. So like it would be like introduction, and then whenever like the first chorus was coming up, it would be like chorus and then like verse and then jam. And um, so there was just like little vocal cues to help us learn the song as we played through it together. And uh, we kind of got used to hearing that voice in there. And so we ended up just keeping the, just one of them, just the introduction voice. And that's where that comes from. So, on to track number six, Spectrum. This is the title track. And this, I remember we first played this idea at John Henderson's house in his basement. Actually, I actually have a video of it. Um, I think the chord progression and the melody are from John. He had, he had been playing these at his house, like the, uh, like he had that in the chords for that section and we worked around that. Um, so that, that's the main part of the song. And then I added, uh, the middle section that's like, um, where it goes into like a four on the floor dance beat and it's kind of like a, a synthy section, kind of like a, I don't know, just the middle section where it changes drastically. Um, me and Andrew Belcastro uh, were working on that section of the song at our house in Southside. Um, and we also, yeah, that's how that happened. Me and Andrew had like a, one of those workshop sessions trying to figure out what else to do with John's original idea and like where to take that. Uh, we came up with the middle section and then we came up with like the kind of the transitions. Um, and then the ending section, all right, we're playing the main theme again at the end of the song. John does a solo and then there's a key change or something. At least the chord progression changes pretty drastically. 
And um, that part we worked out together in the jam space. That kind of just came up as we were practicing the song. I think somebody had that idea and started playing different chords under the melody. Um, and then, you know, someone had the idea of like uh, adding an, ex an extra chord at the end. Um, so that, that came up pretty organically just, just through us playing the song together. And that, that's always cool when that happens. But um, Spectrum, we played that one time live and that was for the Rex Theater video on June 27th, 2020. It's on YouTube. It's the, and it's not to toot my own horn, but toot, 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 like I'll toot our horn. That was, uh, we, we did a good job with Spectrum. Um, we played that song really well for that video. And that's the only recording, like live video of it. And that's the only time we've ever played it live. But um, yeah, I'm really so happy that we captured that live performance of that song, and um, that it, and that it sounds good, and that we, you know, we've got it now. The last song on the album is called "Optical Company." Why is it called "Optical Company"? Because a lot of times when we would be jamming or practicing in Southside at the uh, Store Express, we would take a voice memo if, if we got into a jam that we liked and we wanted to remember it. Because there's so many jams that they happen, and if you don't record them, you'll completely forget what was going on, and like you'll, you might never remember what you played. And that's sad when that happens. So we would take voice memos if, if we got into something that we wanted to remember. So you take a voice memo and the voice memo app would automatically name your voice memo with, it would name it as like your location where you were. And our voice memos always say Beatler McKee Optical Company, which is the name of like an optometrist uh, across the street. So that's just called Optical Company now. And this, this idea was born... I was uh, I was away. I think it was over the summer. I was on a trip to Colorado. Um, I think it was when I was there to play a show last or two summers ago, and um, John and Nick and Andrew got together in our practice space and and jammed a bit, and they came up with this idea, and and they were really excited about it when I got back. Um, so they showed me Optical Company, and we jammed it a good bit, and had to do a fair bit of tinkering to figure out, like, what to do with the original idea, like, where to go from, from there. But eventually we figured it out, um, and it, it ended up being, like, a very, uh, I don't know what the, diverse song, like, it, it goes goes a lot of different places but um yeah i think they they came up with the with the main riff and melodies and then i i came up with the idea for the second section that's kind of like spacey 
in like a spacey. Yeah, that's the best way I can just describe it. And then there's one other section that I, it was kind of just like a Mod Podge, hodgepodge, quilt-like, collage, McDonald's, value menu, no longer a dollar menu. Um, it was just like a combination of, you know, a lot of ideas uh, from, from everybody. That's what I really like about this album is that it, it was very representative of us as a, a unit. And like, even though some of the songs like I brought to the table or John brought to the table, they were very, they developed a lot like with all of us playing them and like contributing ideas to how to tweak them and, and figure out what worked. But yeah, that is, that is Spectrum.